The following resource is from Christ Community Church. For more information, please visit lovinglord.org. Father, we praise you for a God who has revealed to us great detail, things that we would not know or even imagine had you not made them clear 2,000 years ago to the Apostle John on the island of Patmos. I ask, Lord, that as we close this great work that you would be gracious with your children here at Christ Community Church, that you would cause us to remember well, understand correctly, and then live accordingly to this revelation. We do not want to be people, either intentionally or unintentionally, who add or take away from this great book. And we do not want to be people who are caught off guard. You've said again and again, your son is coming soon. We know that to be true. In light of this revelation, Lord, compel us out of your great love to live in light of his coming. I ask, Lord, that as we close this great book, that you would bless us with grace. Grace upon grace, power to be the people and the church and the community that you've called and equipped us to be, to not only keep your word, but to tell others, to call them to Christ, that we might see a great harvest here in the South Bay in these last days. Father, use these past several months to grow us deep in our love for Christ. For if we love Christ more, we will love the lost. We will love obedience. We will want to be holy as you are holy. So above all else, Father, cultivate that love. This hour, I pray, in Christ's name, amen. Very strange preaching from the last page of the last book of the Bible. On the next page of my Bible, page 1,629, I have a table of weights and measures, which is just odd to look at. I'm going to try not to be distracted by it. The title of the sermon is... John's response to Jesus said, I'm coming soon. He says, amen, come, Lord Jesus. And some of you would say, come. It's a fitting way to end this book with our Lord speaking to his church now for the past 2,000 years. When I was a child, I used to play this game, I'm sure you did too, called telephone, where we would sit in a circle and you'd start a message and at the, depending upon the size of the circle, at the end of it, it would be totally distorted. And of course, you would laugh. Um, we did that for fun, but when messages are not communicated correctly, they can have dire consequences, especially if the message is important. For those of you who remember your U.S. history in July of 1945, the Allied forces got together and they submitted an ultimatum to Japan to unconditionally surrender or else. They didn't say what that else was. The terms, though, to Prime Minister Suzuki were surrender or, quote, a negative response to this will lead to swift and absolute destruction. In Tokyo, journalists, they pressed the Prime Minister to say something about this ultimatum to end the war by surrender. Prime Minister Suzuki's reply was this. He said, we are assessing the situation. And he stated, quote, we're refraining from comment at this time. Now, there's great debate on this transmission and this communication. The word in the Japanese is makusatsu, and that means silence. And that was the primary message that the Prime Minister communicated to the media. But the media throughout the world, they received it, and they chose to translate it He's treating, he's treating the argument or the offer to surrender with contempt, or he's ignoring it. It could have been translated, I have no comment yet, or let me keep my comments to myself while we assess. The Allied forces assumed that it was a categorical rejection of the surrender, and so 10 days later they dropped the bomb on Hiroshima, and as you know, killed immediately or through radiation poisoning over 150,000 people. If, in fact, Prime Minister Suzuki meant he was assessing the terms and not commenting yet, and the Allied forces misunderstood or misinterpreted this message, it could be considered one of the greatest 
and deadliest forms of miscommunication in human history. This morning, as we close our 11-month, and it has been 11 months, study in the book of Revelation, Jesus takes extreme measures to make sure that we do not misinterpret the book of Revelation. And he does so because the teachings of this book, if they're altered even a little bit, if they're misunderstood, may lead to God's children not only not living a life that is pleasing to him in light of the teachings, but potentially to the loss of lives of millions of souls who do not hear the true gospel of Jesus Christ. So Jesus closes the book by speaking himself, and it's fitting. The whole book was about him. And he gives us a warning. He says, do not add or take away from what John received and recorded for you. And then a reminder. He says, I'm coming soon. And so I'd like for us to close. I think it's fitting for us to close with a warning and a sense of urgency too. That's the way the book closes, and that's the way we want to close, with a warning and a sense of of urgency. 2,000 years have passed since this book was written. So you can say in some sense there's greater urgency now than even in the day of John that Jesus' return is imminently closer now. So let's join John one last time this morning. And I hope you're a bit sad. I'm a bit sad. It's always hard ending a book, especially as great as this. We've done 11 months though. I think that's a, that's a good effort. We've done some good work. You've made it through thankful you're still here. Most of you are still here. (laughs) Let's join him again and consider our responsibility to one, preserve the king's words, and number two, prepare for the king's return. We want to preserve the words of the king, and we want to prepare for the king's coming. The theme of the sermon is simple. It's this, heed the king's words as you eagerly await his return. Heed his words Know them and obey them as you eagerly await for the king's return. Point number one, preserve the king's words. Verses 18 and 19, um, it's called an oath formula. Now, an oath formula, an oath formula in, when you're trying to interpret Scripture, with apocalyptic genre, it's a, um, essentially it's an affirmation that what was recorded is true, that it's, it's the real word of God. It's an affirmation that what the Apostle John received and recorded is God's word. In fact, three times in the book, if you remember, John says these words are what? These words are trustworthy and true. They're trustworthy and true. You say, why does he keep telling us that? Because we don't want to doubt that it's actually God's word. In fact, in the Old Testament, oath formulas, they were usually attached to prophecies. And you probably know that the prophecy would have something like, thus saith the Lord. Or as I live, says the Lord. In other words, there are attempts, and here by Christ himself, Christ steps up and he speaks. It's an attempt to affirm what has been written down. But what's interesting, you probably noticed this, is that this oath formula is in the form of a warning. Jesus sets an oath, and then he warns all those who hear this book not to tamper with it. Look at verse 18. Jesus is now speaking, and he says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. It, the literal translation is probably better. It means, I testify to everyone. He says, I'm a witness. This is the Son of God now. This is the second person of the Holy Triune God saying, I testify. I'm making an oath that if anyone, regardless of age or upbringing or theological training, anyone in human history who changes this book, who alters it even a little bit, By adding to it or taking away, Jesus says, I'm promising nothing less than eternal damnation. Now that's that's a serious warning, my beloved, for those of you who may be tempted to do just that, to add or take away from the book of Revelation. In fact, Jesus uses a play on words. He says, if you add to this book, I'm going to add some plagues to you. If you take away from this book, I'm going to take away from you the tree of life and the city of God. Look at verse 18 again. He said, if anyone adds to them, that's the words of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. So if you add to a vision or a teaching or a prophecy or a warning or a promise, if you alter the story in any way by adding to it, Jesus now speaking himself says, I'm gonna bring the very plagues in this book upon you. Now, if you were here with us for that 
that we did a run for the three cycles of judgments, and we ended, remember, with the bold judgments, and those were the most severe of the judgments, the seven judgments of wrath. We had, we had things like harmful and painful sores. We had seas and rivers of blood. We had the scorching sun, which, which burned people. We had darkness. We had drought. We had suffering. All the wrath of God. Jesus says, if you mess with my word here in Revelation, that's coming upon you. That's what I'm going to add to your life if you add to this book. He says essentially the same thing in a different way if we take away from the book. Look at verse 19. Jesus now, it's important to know, Jesus is speaking. He said, if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, the book of Revelation, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. Now, we've already talked about that's the, the tree of life, the river of life, the city, that's symbolic for eternal life, God with his people. So we know that that's what it's referring to here. And so Jesus is saying, you take away from this book, and, and I'm going I'm to take away the tree. I'm going to take away the city. In other words, you're going to be cast outside. You're not going to have the eternal life that's talked about in this book. No access to the tree, no access to the water, no access to God. If you take away from what John received. In other words, the consequences are nothing less, my beloved, than eternal damnation for tampering with, altering, adding, or taking away from this book. Now you're probably thinking, wow, wow, Lord, that's so extreme. It is extreme. So I want to ask and answer two questions because I was struggling with this a bit this week. I hope you are too. I want to, I want to know what does it mean to add or take away from this book, what does it mean? And number two, I want to know, why is the punishment eternal death? Because if that's true, there are people that we know and listen to, maybe we've even read, that we think they might be in trouble if this is true. So first of all, what does it mean to add or take away? Well, obviously in its most literal sense, if you add chapters or verses or passages to the book of Revelation, or you take passages out because you don't like them, you don't like the judgment cycles. You don't like the idea of, of water turning to blood and the plagues. Um, if you do that, if you literally change the words of what John wrote or you add to the words of what John wrote, then this is going to come upon you, these, this eternal damnation. Um, and that has happened. Actually, it's not uncommon. Um, the, the textual history of apocalyptic literature in particular, authors, subsequent authors would take it upon themselves as self-proclaimed prophets and they would take the book and they would add to the book or they would take away from the book. They'd, they'd make changes to it. So that's, that's an easy one to understand. We don't want to do that. We don't want to take out or add to the book. But the greater concern, and certainly has been, was then and is now, is not necessarily changing the words by crossing them out or typing them in. The greater concern is not interpreting these words correctly or intentionally changing what John meant when he wrote the book. Every author, as we know, every author of every book for that matter, but certainly of the Bible, when they write, they mean something. They're communicating a specific message to a particular audience. That's no different with John. In fact, when we exegete or we try to extract meaning out of a passage, one thing you gotta land on, you gotta say, what did he mean when he originally wrote it to the original audience? You have to ask that question. And so, for example, if, if we get to the book of to chapter 19 in, in the book of Revelation, and I start talking to you about this rider on the white horse whose his robe is dripped in blood, and I, I believe that is Christ, and that's the, the final judgment in Revelation 19. I'll read it to you, verse 13 of Revelation 19. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which he strikes down the nation, and his rule He'll rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And you hear that, and we talked about this is God's final judgment. This is the last judgment when Christ comes to, to make things right. And let's say that you were to take that and you were to add to it, and you'd say, you know what, that's, that's God's wrath coming upon all those who reject Jesus Christ. You'd be right in that. But then you said, you know what, that's also, that's also God's wrath for all those who do not live perfectly sinless lives in Christ. Now you've added the book. It doesn't say that, but that's your interpretation. You might go even one step further and say, this is God's wrath for all those who do not have a second anointing in the Holy Spirit, who are not acting in the power of the Spirit by speaking in tongues or doing miraculous gifts. You might add it that way. 
You might say, you know what, I'm not going to add to it, but I'm going to take it away. This certainly is Christ coming to judge. And this is the final judgment and the final wrath. But I do not believe the judgment is eternal. I believe that he'll come and he'll judge. But eventually, eventually this Savior we know is gracious and kind. And eventually he will empty hell and he will bring everybody into heaven. The idea of universal salvation for all mankind, regardless of what you believed or how you lived when you were on this planet. That is a form of modern-day Catholicism today. Any willful alteration or intentional misinterpretation of this book, or for that matter, any word of God in the Bible will be met according to God's word with severity from God. In fact, if you remember when Moses was receiving the, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, at the very end of the writing in Deuteronomy chapter 4, do you remember this? I hope not. I hope you do. If not, listen. God said to Moses, you shall not add to the word that I commanded you nor take from it so that you may keep the commands of the Lord your God that I commanded you. So even in the first five books of the Bible, God made it very clear that any willful or intentional deletion or addition would be subject to punishment. Now, I added the word willful and intentional because that's really important. Interpreting the Bible is difficult. I would argue interpreting apocalyptic genre is very, very difficult. So just to ease your conscience a bit, if you did not land in some of the same places that I landed, but you landed in places where the church has embraced maybe for hundreds of years, this warning does not pertain to textual criticism. It does not pertain to legitimate struggles over grammar or wording or context or meaning. Because some of these things are hard, as you have experienced over the past 11 months. Nor does this warning, I believe, pertain to those who have different but legitimate interpretations of the book of Revelation. Legitimate but different interpretations. For example, if you're a John MacArthur fan, which I am, and you were to listen to John MacArthur's series on the book of Revelation, and then you were to listen to my series in the book of Revelation, you might conclude we are preaching from two entirely different books. You might think, well, someone is off here. Now, I imagine that if John MacArthur and I had a chance to sit down. We would agree to disagree. He, I would say, I think you're wrong. He would say, Keith, I think you're wrong. And he'd probably have a lot more force behind his voice than I would. But I hope that neither of us would conclude that we're going to be denied the tree of life. I hope that we would understand that our, our different lenses that we see this book through would not condemn us to eternal damnation, that we're both still in the kingdom now, that being said, I, I do think that these verses should compel us as Christians to work harder to have a consensus in the context of the body of Christ. I really do. I was, I was really convicted this week as I was studying this how easy we say there are four major views. We say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm premillennial, I'm postmillennial, I'm amillennial, I'm dispensational, you believe what you believe, I believe what I believe, we're all okay. And, and, we're all okay in that I, I think we're still within the pale of orthodoxy. We're still in the church, but I don't think it's okay to be so okay with such differing perspectives. Three of those four perspectives are so dramatically different that how you interpret the book of Revelation may change how you live today and certainly will impact how you interpret other Bible passages. I think that's a big deal. I think that's a big deal. So while we will say we will not break fellowship, I do think that in light of verses 18 and 19, we should fight really, really, really hard to have greater consensus and unity in the universal body of Christ over this book. Can I get an amen one for you? All right. So I'm not advocating breaking fellowship, but I am suggesting in light of these verses that we should strive harder to get unity on what this means. Right? One of us is we're, we're wrong, right? You can't, we can't all be right, so there's some room here. Um, so we know, we know that it means not to add or take away in the context either literally or um, through interpretation. But the second question I think we have to ask is, why is it eternal damnation? Why is the punishment so severe for adding or taking away from this book? Jesus, obviously, he wants to, he's speaking, he wants to preserve the sanctity and completeness. He's saying this is God's word. Don't touch God's word. But why eternal death? Why are you denied 
access to the tree of life and the city of God if you tamper with and tweak intentionally either the book of Revelation or I, I think I could argue the word of God in general. Um, first and foremost, I think it's God's word. So that's, a, that's sufficient. It's God's word. You, me, we have no right as creatures to play with God's word. We don't have any right to change it and to speak authoritatively from it as though somehow now it's God's word and our word. God's word and your word or my word. It's his word. Peter said very clearly, 2 Peter chapter 1, listen. He said, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. He said, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So we believe the Apostle John, carried along by the Holy Spirit, transcribed the book of Revelation we have. We have no right to touch it. Don't add to it, don't delete it, don't change the meaning. Fight to understand it, but don't play with it. We're messengers, my beloved. As Christians, we're messengers of God's word. Understand it. Live in accordance with it. Tell others about it, but do not change it. And don't change it to suit your needs. And don't change it to suit your circumstances. Years ago, years ago, probably 25 now, I went to a a funeral service of a former student of mine. I knew the family, the family, they were professing Christians. And, and the son was in active rebellion against Christianity, the church, the gospel, and Jesus Christ. He died tragically in a car accident at 18. And I, and I went to the funeral service at the church that his parents attended. And the pastor was probably attempting to appease the grieving family and maybe even um, trying not to offend a largely unsaved gathering that was at the church And he talked about this young man and now how he was with Christ, in the presence of Christ, quoting Revelation, wearing a white robe and enjoying the glories of heaven. Rather than talking about Revelation chapter 20, verse 15, that if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown where? Into the lake of fire. And we all sat there and we all knew this young man did not know Christ when he died. Everyone there knew this, but the pastor decided to change the word of God in this context to suit either the audience, and in so doing, he potentially misled dozens who had gathered that day. We are not to add or take away from God's word because it is God's word. We have no right. We're messengers. There's another reason. By intentionally adding or taking away from this book, you are going to potentially mislead those who are pursuing Christ. Brothers and sisters in Christ. Seven times in the book, seven times the book says that Jesus is coming soon. So if I, for example, if I I were to stand up here and I were to talk about that and say, it said he's coming soon, he said he's coming soon, but it's been 2,000 years. So he's obviously not coming soon. If I do that, I am changing the message of the book of Revelation. I'm stripping away the urgency that God clearly intended to communicate and for us to think about. Because the conclusion will be what? Well, I got more time. I got more time. It says he's coming soon, but pastor, you said it's been 2,000 years, so obviously he's not coming soon. That's a, a gap problem. I got time to continue in certain sins instead of putting them to death today. I have time. I have time to continue pursuing all my worldly dreams instead of engaging in the work of the kingdom of my Savior, Jesus Christ. I have time. I have time to share the gospel with the lost in my mission field. I'll do it next week. I'll do it next month. Things are busy right now. Time is difficult for me. I have time. I have time to make things right before the judge comes to make things right. We should expect, my beloved, if I were to teach that, intentionally and willfully, we should expect God to be particularly severe with such a perversion of a clear teaching that Jesus is coming soon. You remember the words of our Lord, Luke 17. He said to the disciples, listen, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. Woe to that one. It'd be better for him if he had a millstone that's a massive stone, hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea, then he should cause one of these little ones, speaking of God's children, to sin. Severity is understandable when it comes to people perverting the word of God and misleading God's people. 
So the punishment is severe because it's God's word. We ought not manipulate it. It's severe because we don't want to lead God's children astray. But there's one more, and this is probably the most important. We don't want to add to or take away from this book because in so doing, we alter the gospel message. And when you alter the gospel, you put souls in jeopardy. We don't want to add or take away because it changes the gospel message. If you remember how we started the book 11 months ago, I know you do. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, you remember what it said? Here it is, the revelation of Jesus Christ. The entire book is about Jesus. It starts off, Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then John doesn't get 15 verses. He makes it to verse 16 in Revelation 1, and he glorifies Christ. Listen, he says, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. So it's a revelation about Christ glorified. And then, my beloved, we don't even make it out of chapter 1 before the gospel is presented to us. Revelation chapter 1, verse 17, Jesus said, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forever, and I have the keys of death and Hades. So we don't get out of chapter 1 until Jesus Christ and the gospel are made clear. And then John spends 21 chapters developing how this savior of man is going to come and judge and redeem, how he's going to judge once and forever Satan, sin, death, Hades, and the reprobate in the lake of fire, and how he will redeem out of judgment all those who put their faith in him, how he will bring them into the new creation, the new heaven, the new earth, and this new Jerusalem, this city of God that God is making to dwell with his people forever and ever. This is the story. It is the gospel story. So if we change it, if we add to it, if we take away, we change the gospel. You change the gospel, my beloved. You change the gospel. You nullify the gospel. You add to the gospel. You nullify the gospel. You take away from the gospel, you nullify the gospel. We don't want to do that. We know what Paul said to the church in Galatia. You remember that. Galatians chapter 1, there are some who trouble you and want to what? Distort the gospel of Christ. He said, but even if if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach, let him be what? Let him be accursed, an anathema. To tamper with the gospel It's to tamper with souls. It's to tamper with the eternity of people because we know, Paul said, the gospel is the power for salvation to everyone who believes. It is the gospel that has the power to redeem and make dead people alive. So to knowingly do it, to intentionally do it, to lead people astray, away from Christ and into the darkness, out, to deny them the tree of life, the holy city, That's not what we're called to do. We are called to preserve the Word of God. We are called as a church to understand what John meant when he wrote it. We're to understand it, and we are called by the power of the Holy Spirit to live in accordance with it. We are called to understand it and to live it and then to tell others about it. This is the role of the church when it comes to God's sacred Word. And we can't do that We certainly can't do that well if we're adding or taking away. And so God says, Jesus says lovingly, if you do, if you do it intentionally, if you do it willfully, then eternal damnation is what awaits you. Now, my beloved, I I don't have to tell you the Western world, the world in general, but the Western world is filled with false teachers and false preachers and false prophets. They take the word of God. They take the book of Revelation and they twist it and they contort it in order to suit their own needs, in order to tickle the ears of those that listen to them. We need to pray for them. I know that we stand oftentimes as Reformed Baptists with our nose up high. We need to pray for them. Their judgment is catastrophic. And we need to pray for all those who have been seduced by them, for their judgment is the lake of fire as well. So first, I pray we see Jesus' warning here at the end of the book for us to preserve this book to not add or take away from it. Are you still with me? It's the second to last thing he says, but the last thing he says, prepare for my coming. Prepare for the king's return. Look at, look at verse 20. We want to preserve the word and we want to prepare for his coming. Verse 20. He who testifies to these things, John is talking about Jesus. 
he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, said John. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Amen. So after Jesus Christ personally testifies to the authenticity with this this oath formula, verifying these words are true and trustworthy, the very word of God, after he does that, he closes the sacred canon. Now this is, listen, this is not just the end of the book of Revelation. This is the end of the Bible. And, And I believe that John wrote this in the early 90s AD on the island of Patmos. Therefore, this was the last writing. This was the last sacred scripture. So these are the last recorded words of Jesus Christ. I don't know, that just blew me away as I, was, as I was handling them and reading them and thinking about them. The last thing our Lord said to us that's recorded in this book is surely I am coming soon. Some translate it, yes, I'm coming quickly. He's saying, listen, the end of all things is at hand. Just as John told you, it is near. I am coming soon. In other words, it's, it's a solemn promise from our king. He hasn't left us. He's coming back. It's a solemn promise that this king will bring heaven to earth and he will inaugurate this eternal kingdom of which you will be a part if you are in Christ. This is the promise of what we call the great parousia, the second coming of our Lord. We know the first coming. We celebrate it every Christmas, that first advent. This is the second advent. When he comes again in glory to what? We know the creed, to judge living in the dead and establish his kingdom which has no end. That's what Jesus is talking about here. In fact, Jesus, his, by his own mouth, he promised five times in the book of Revelation, I'm coming soon, I'm coming soon, I'm coming soon. This is the fifth and final time. Now, the significance of last words are not lost on most of us. We understand that when somebody's saying something to you for the last time, or even last time for a moment of time, there's usually weight and there's urgency to it. I wish Joshua were here because he'd be a little bit embarrassed. Every time Joshua goes back to school, almost every time, I've got to be careful with my words here, almost every time, Lori says, I love you, be safe. <laughs> and Joshua says, yeah, 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 uh, be safe. My dad, when I was younger, when I was in the house but old enough to go out of the house on my own, he would say oftentimes, don't do anything stupid. And I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. That's good. That's good counsel. Don't do anything stupid. I'm thinking, I'm probably going to do something stupid, right? Soldiers leaving for war, they hear their loved ones say what? Come back to me in one piece. Come back to me. So there's always great weight and there's usually urgency with with final words and final declarations. And so Jesus here speaking himself for the last time, the last thing he says is what? Surely I am coming soon. Oh my beloved, we want to grasp the weight and the urgency of those beautiful, profound words. Surely, Jesus said, I am coming soon. For the past two weeks now, we've looked at how we need to prepare for his coming. And we've walked through several passages in Revelation 22. We, we looked at how we need to what? We need to keep his word. And that was very simple. We need to obey it. If the king is coming, then we need to keep the king's words. We looked at how we need to worship God alone. Remember how John bowed down to the angel and the angel said, don't, don't do that. And we concluded we need to worship God alone and cast out all idols in our lives. We looked at how we are to take this message and tell the nations and call people to Christ, to tell them to come to Christ. And then last week we had a chance to see how we are to take our robes and we are to wash them in the blood of Jesus. That our our hope of eternal life, our hope of being made clean must come by grace through faith in Christ alone. That we have no other hope of making it in to the city, to the tree of life, apart from Jesus. Now, each of these characteristics, they, they, they really kind of define the Christian life. Daily obedience, daily worship, daily evangelism, telling the nations, calling them to Christ, and daily spiritual cleansing. These are things we're supposed to do every single day. If you are following Jesus Christ, you're supposed to obey him, worship him, evangelize, and be made clean. But in order to do this well... We need to believe and daily meditate on these final words. Jesus saying, surely I am coming soon. You see, the the more you keep Jesus' imminent return, as in possibly today or tomorrow, the more you keep that before you in your mind's eye, the more you cherish that in your heart, the more you will live today as what? As your last day. 
You will live today as your last day because you believe Jesus is coming soon as in today. Late is tomorrow. I asked this question in the service outline email I sent out. What if you knew, my beloved, what if you knew he's coming tomorrow? What if you knew that? I mean, you knew definitively. You say, well, the Bible tells us that we can't, Pastor. You can't tell us. What if you did? What if you knew he was coming tomorrow? Wouldn't you minimally strive to make this last day count? I mean, wouldn't you say, this is a big day for me. Jesus is coming tomorrow. Wouldn't you want to be obedient to his revealed word? Wouldn't, if this was your last day, wouldn't you want all the good life-giving commands in the Bible to be something you do rather than living in disobedience? I, I think we would. I think it's a simple deduction. Wouldn't you want this last day before Jesus returns to be a day where you worship God really well, where you, you put aside all those silly idols that you bow down to, and this last day you make it count by worshiping God? And wouldn't you, my beloved, Kirk talked about this this morning. He didn't see my notes. Wouldn't you want to be telling anyone and everyone who doesn't know Christ, he's coming tomorrow? Wouldn't you become the ultimate evangelist, you would. I know you would. You would not be shy. You would not be afraid of man. You wouldn't care what they think about you because tomorrow everything ends. So you would speak today boldly. You would evangelize the lost. You would tell your friends and family, Christ is coming. Repent and believe before it's too late. And wouldn't you put all your faith and all your hope in the cleansing blood of Christ? Wouldn't you make sure that you're cleansing your access to the tree of life and the city of God comes through the work of Christ and not your own morality or your marriage or your parenting or your career or your bank account and all the things that you think you're so good at that God made yourself worthy of coming into God's presence. Don't those things sound utterly stupid in light of Jesus coming tomorrow? If you knew Jesus was coming tomorrow, would you seriously think, well, I've had a great career. You think, Lord, look what I've done with my bank account. Look how I've raised my children. You wouldn't think that for a second. You'd think he's coming tomorrow. Today matters. Today matters. As creatures bound by time, we struggle with having the future impact our present reality. We preached, I preached a sermon on it. We become myopic, don't we? We come very narrow. Day in and day out, we do our days. We do our weeks. We do our daily work or school. We do our daily responsibilities. We have a little bit of downtime, maybe a little bit of fun, and then we do it again and again and again. This is not the right way to understand the close of the book of Revelation. Jesus said, I'm coming soon, therefore live differently, not with tunnel vision. We must plan for his imminent coming. Now, as Westerners, we just don't plan well at all. You know, there was a, a study done in March, just a few months ago, on people who are between the ages of 55 and 66 who are getting ready to retire. 50% of those in the study, between 55 and 66, have $0 saved for retirement. They are going to live off Social Security. Well, that's laughable. 55%, 50% of those between 55 and 66 have $0 saved for retirement, and yet they plan on retiring soon either because they want to or they can no longer work. That's bad planning. Even worse, my beloved, this should encourage you to do some future planning. In the United States, 21% of all funerals are held by people who have done no planning for their own funeral. 21%. That's 79% of Americans who go to their grave without making a single plan or giving a single thought to being buried. No thought at all. We don't plan. As Christians, we don't want to treat Jesus' last words, surely I'm coming soon, like we do our retirement or our funeral planning. That's bad. That's not a right way to approach the end of this book. We want to believe he's coming because he said so and he can't lie. And we want to live day in and day out as though he's coming today or tomorrow. That's the right response. If Jesus says, surely I'm coming soon, then our response is that I want to live like you're coming today. I want to live like you're coming tomorrow, Lord. John believed it. John lived like Jesus was coming back. He did. You say, well, how, how do I know? How do I know that? Well, we have lots of testimony from 
his own letters, but the end of verse 20 is striking. Look at it with me again. I know that John was, was ready for Jesus' return, living ready for his return. Jesus says, surely I'm coming soon. John's response is, amen, come, Lord Jesus. That's his response. Jesus is saying, I'm coming soon. Now, it's a, it's a prayer of supplication, but it's a, it's a strange prayer in the New Testament. I know I don't talk about the Greek much, but this particular wording of this piece of the verse, it's in the present imperative. And what that means, that's rare in prayers of supplication. John is essentially telling Jesus, you do what you just said. It's an imperative to Jesus to fulfill the promise and come now. Jesus says, surely I'm coming soon. John is essentially saying, yes, amen, do that, Lord Jesus. Do that right now, as one translator put it. Odd for a prayer of supplication. John telling Jesus to come. My question for you is this. When you heard Kirk read and then me read, Jesus say, I am coming soon, was your response the same as John's? Yes, come now. Was your heart the same as John's, eager to see Jesus even this hour? Did you say, yes, Jesus, come now. Come before this service ends. Come before we have lunch. Come before I come home tonight. Come, Lord Jesus, come now. Tom Schreiner, he wrote, a commentary in the book of Revelation, another smaller book. He said this, and I think he's spot on. Speaking of Jesus saying, I'm coming now in John's response. If this is not the cry of our own hearts for Jesus to come now, we have not truly understood the book of Revelation or the message of the New Testament. If you don't hear Jesus say, surely I'm coming soon, and you say, come now, then we're missing the book of Revelation, and we're missing the primary teaching of the New Testament. Now, this is not a hard concept, my beloved. If you, as a believer, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, then what do you desire most? You desire most to be with God. If he is the one you truly love most, there's no other love that compares than when Jesus says, I'm coming soon, you too will, like John, say, right now, right now, do not wait. Jesus, you said you're coming. Your heart will desire Christ most. Nothing, no other desire, good or bad, will supersede you being with Jesus. And if your response is, come Lord Jesus, just not yet. Oh yeah, surely come Jesus, but you gotta wait because I've got things I gotta do that I'm, I would argue that, well, I've probably done a very poor job revealing revelation to you. There might be something wrong with your not responding like John responded. When we contemplate the parousia, the second coming of Christ, there are, there are usually some reasons why we don't say come now like John did. Um, if, if you love this world and you love the things of this world, the, the false beauty that we saw that Babylon portrays, then you're gonna tell Jesus to wait. You want him to come, but you wanna wait for years so you can still enjoy the, the life in Babylon. If that's you, if you're hesitant because there are things of this world that you want to consume and enjoy or participate in, then I will compel you, I'll argue right now, you need to repent immediately. Babylon's gonna be destroyed and you do not want to be swept up with that destruction. That's a horrible reason to have Jesus wait for his return. If you're reluctant for Jesus to come because this day you are in willful, unrepentant sin, then I will call you to repent and turn immediately. You don't want to be like the sorcerer or the murderers or the liars who are outside the city, who don't have access to the city gate. They don't have access to the tree of life. You don't want to be like those. Repent immediately today. He could come back today. If you don't want him to come back immediately because you think the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem will be less satisfying and less purposeful, purposeful than your life here on earth as it is right now, well, then I have absolutely failed in the preaching of the book of Revelation. I have not rightly magnified or glorified the eternal dwelling place we will have with God. But if you think for a moment 
that you're going to miss out on something when that new heavens, when the heavens come down to earth? We had a chance to sing it. Your best days, your best weeks, your best months and years on earth compared to your dwelling with Christ in the new Jerusalem, they will be but a distant dream, a taste, a foreshadowing at best, a whisper of the greatness that God has in store for all those who are in Christ. If you've had a single good day or a good moment, you've only tasted the eternal glory that God has in store for his people. C.S. Lewis, if you read through the Chronicles of Narnia, the, the last book on the last battle, he, he tried to give this glimpse of this indescribable beauty and majesty of the new Jerusalem. Listen to what he wrote. He said, the things that happened to, the things that began to happen were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. He's talking about heaven coming down and the transformation of all that is seen and unseen. He said, for this is the end of all the stories, all our small, many narratives, but it was also the beginning of the real story. Now listen. He said, all their life in this world had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth had read. That's your first day in the eternal kingdom with God. No one on earth has read which goes on, this great story goes on forever and ever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. That's fantastic, isn't it? Eternal life with God gets better and better for all eternity. So if you're hesitant even for a moment to have Jesus come because you think there's something you need to do, oh, just flush that out. That's just a ridiculous, foolish thought. The only compelling reason that people have and, and I'm going to argue this isn't even compelling, is that we don't want Jesus to come because there are unsaved that we love that want to be saved. Right? That's, that's the other centered perspective. We know. We know this book said when Jesus comes, he's going to judge. He's going to judge them according to what? What they have done. And if their names are not written in the Lamb's book of life, if they have not repented and believed and put their faith in Christ, we know that Christ is going to throw them into the lake of fire. And so we say, not yet, Jesus, but I, I'm going to, I'm going to push back on that a bit. I still think that's a bad reason to tell Jesus to delay his coming. And here's why. The Bible clearly teaches that all who are ordained to be saved, God will save. Everyone ordained to be saved before the foundations of the world, God will save at the exact right time according to his perfect decree. Time from God's perspective is irrelevant when it comes to saving the lost. Your children your parents, your family, and friends. So even, even your loved ones that you want saved are not compelling reason to alter this come, Lord Jesus, come. We want him to come. Our eagerness for his coming will prepare us when he comes. John was prepared, my beloved, because he was eager. He anticipated, he expected Jesus to come. And it changed everything for him. There's a great story of a, of a pastor, uh, Hugh McHale, Scottish. Hugh McHale, he's from Scotland. This is 1666, 1667, somewhere in that time period. He was a, he was a pastor part of the, the Covenanteers. It was a, an early Presbyterian movement that was being persecuted for their beliefs. And he was arrested and he was, he was taken to trial in Edinburgh and he was sentenced to death in four days. He was sentenced to death. And so they take him from the, from the courtroom and they're marching him through the streets back to prison awaiting his death and a crowd had gathered and they lined the streets and according to the story they were weeping that such a young, gallant pastor who loved the Lord would, be, would perish in four days. But he did not cry. He was not crying at all. Listen to this. As he was walking, he kept crying out, trust in God, trust in God as he was walking back to his prison cell. And then... It says, suddenly he saw a friend that he knew standing at the edge of the crowd and he shouted to him, listen to this. He said, good news, friend. Wonderful good news. I'm within four days of enjoying the sight of my Jesus, my Savior. Simple question, do you live like that, my beloved? Is that how your days are? Thinking about the hours until you see Jesus. 
Pastor Mikhail said, four days, and I'm in glory with the one I love most. Do you prepare yourself by anticipating and wanting him to come, by longing for it, by praying for it? Do you pray like John, Lord Jesus, come today. Come before I close my eyes tonight. You see, when you pray such prayers, faithfully and regularly, you'll find yourself living differently. You will. If you truly expect Jesus to come today or tomorrow, you will become more obedient in your faith. You'll become more Christ-centered in your worship. You'll become an evangelist because you believe Christ is coming and you want those you love not to perish. And you will put all your faith and all your hope in the sanctifying power of the blood of Jesus Christ. You won't look to anything else to grant you entrance into the eternal kingdom. If you eagerly expect and anticipate his coming today, today. We want to meditate on it. We want to eagerly expect it. And then I'm going to close here. I'm sorry. I I had like a three-hour sermon. I mean, this is the end of the book, right? So we could just go on and on and on. But I'm going to close, I promise. You want to meditate on it. You want to expect it. But there's one more thing, my beloved. You want to embrace the grace, the power of God to not only understand what this book said, but to live in accordance with it. Jesus ends, John ends this sacred canon, the entire Bible, with verse 21. Look at it with me. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with all. Amen. Let it be so. Now you say, oh, you know, Pastor, I, I took a New Testament survey class. I know that's a, that's a first century Mediterranean New Testament benediction. I, that's in Romans. It's in First and Second Corinthians. That's in Galatians. That's in Ephesians. That's in Hebrews. They have this. It's just a benediction. It's grace to you. It's, it's peace to you. It's happiness to you. Not so. Not in any of them, and certainly not here. This is added to the end of this most difficult book to hear because we desperately need the grace and the power of God to know it and live it out. And that's why it ends with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ, his power flowing from our king to his people to live out this life. My car needs gas or it will not go. My house needs electricity or I have no lights. My body needs food or I have no power. We Christians need the gospel of grace. We need the grace of God or we cannot understand and do what the book calls us to do. You need God's grace. So if you've been overwhelmed, and I asked a few of you, I said, tell me some of the hardest parts about this book. These were at the top. If you're a bit overwhelmed by the pervasive evil that you saw in the book of Revelation and you agree with my teaching, that it's going to get progressively worse as Jesus draws near. And it's overwhelmed you that the whole earth is going to be swallowed up by this. I'm telling you, in Christ, God will give you the grace and the power not only to not be afraid and not only not to get caught up in it, he will give you the grace and the power to be a brilliant light in the midst of this present darkness. That's the promise of verse 21. God's grace and power to make you the salt and the light in the midst of this darkness, to bring the hope of the gospel to those trapped in it. If the judgment cycles, especially the, the seven bowls, got you, and you thought, it's just, it's just so severe, Lord, so extreme, Lord, if that was difficult for you to hear, then God promises to give you the grace to not only understand it, but to see it's God's justice and God's righteousness, and that is good. It's hard, but it's good. You will, by God's grace, you will be like the prophet Amos in Amos chapter five when the prophet said, let justice roll down like a river and God's righteousness like a never failing stream. Let it come, Lord. Bring your wrath, bring your judgment. God will give you the grace to be able to say that and believe it. If my beloved, this was by more than one of you, if the majesty and the glory and the beauty of heaven seems too good to be true, and you said, you know, it's just so beyond my imagination. It's so beyond my experiences here on earth. It's so over the top. God will give you the grace and the power to believe it. And in believing it, you will forsake building your silly little kingdom on earth and you will live for the kingdom of God. 
He will do that for you by his power. He will make you like what? He'll make you, as Jesus said in Matthew 18, he'll make you like little children who'll be able to come and to listen and to say yes. That is real. The new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, me being with God, that's real. That's the glory. I believe it. As a child, I believe it. And as a child, I will receive it as a gift. There's a, a, a great story about a father who was tucking his eight-year-old daughter to bed. I don't know if this is the best bedtime question to ask. Probably got her mind going. He asked her this question. He said, what's the one thing you're looking forward to most about heaven? She's eight. Immediately, the girl's eyes lit up, and she said, so she'd been thinking about it. She was, I can't wait for big roller coasters with no waiting lines. It's good. This is good. It was apparent she had already thought long and hard about the prospect of what heaven was going to be like. I also, she said, I also, it's not, not enough, I also want to slide down rainbows, and I want to have picnics on clouds. The father said, do you want any pets? She nodded emphatically, I want a dinosaur. She had a much better perspective, not literally, but in terms of the majesty of heaven than many Christians do today. She got how good it's going to be. God will give you the grace to believe the greatness of the eternal life that waits for you in Christ. My beloved, if you struggle believing that God could love a sinner like you, and forgive a sinner like you to bring you into a kingdom like this, then God will give you the grace to gaze upon his crucified son. He will take your eyes to the cross and you will see that savior who bled for you to have you, to forgive you of your sins, to wash you white as snow, to give you access through the gate to the tree of life and to the water of life and the community of God's people, to have God forever and ever. He'll give you the grace to see the Savior, and now you will understand that no greater love has a man than this, than he gives his life for a friend, for us, an enemy, to make us friends forever and ever. All right, I, I gotta stop. This is the greatest ending to the greatest story ever told. This is it. I want to encourage you to go back and reread through this magnificent book a handful of times. Ask God by the Holy Spirit to bring to mind some of the salient, important teachings of this book. Ask the Holy Spirit to give you understanding and then cause you to be obedient to it. Ask the Holy Spirit to enable you to go out and tell the nations they need to hear the story and the gospel of this book. Ask the Holy Spirit to call you to tell them to come to Jesus. And believe with all your might that Jesus is coming soon. Live today as though he were coming today. And you'll be pleased in making this day count. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask you would do just that that you would by your spirit bring to mind all the teachings, the rich visions, the, the prophecies and the promises of this incredible book. Bring it back to our hearts and minds, Father, that we might meditate it on ourselves, that we might truly understand it at a deeper level. And then by the power of your spirit, Lord, I pray you would cause us to keep it, to obey it, to be a people of the book, not adding to it, not taking away from it, but living in accordance with it. I pray you would do that, Father, because we do believe, I know my brothers and sisters here, we believe Jesus is coming soon. We believe it could be today. And we want this day and every day you give us to count for time and eternity. Father, I pray that in light of this revelation that we'd be eager like John for Jesus to come. That we would say as well, amen, come Lord Jesus, come and we'd mean it. Lord, only you can do this work. It is a, a high supplication. But if John can petition Jesus to come, if he can give him the imperative to come now, then we can ask you for these things too. You're a mighty God, and you want to bless us like this. 
We thank you so much for loving sinners through Christ and bringing us into your kingdom. Compel us to live lives worthy of this great calling, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. Christ Community Church is a Reformed Baptist church in San Jose, California. If you'd like more information on our church, please visit lovinglord.org. From there, you can find service times, weekly gatherings, our sermon archive, and other resources. For video content, please visit our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you again for listening.